100 years ago today, 5 a.m., the German leaders met with the leaders of the Allied forces to sign an armistice, an armistice to officially end World War I. The official time of the end of, war, of the war would be six hours later at 11 a.m., and it would be forever remembered as 11, 11, at 11. The armistice would bring to an end to a war which brought the death of 9 million soldiers, wounding 21 million more, and the death of at least 5 million civilians by disease, starvation, or exposure. But did it bring peace? In the more than 4,000 years of recorded history, there have only been about 290 years of worldwide peace. In Europe alone, there have been 286 wars in the last 300 years. Over 8,000 peace treaties have been signed, and almost all of them have been broken. There have been over 1,650 arms races, and all but 16 have ended in war. So, so often, peace seems to elude us. Even when we seem to have gained peace somehow, it slips away so easily. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. It's generally used as a greeting like asking, how is everyone doing, or I hope all is well. It's used as both a greeting and as a way to bless someone, calling on God's goodness on someone's behalf, saying, may God grant you peace, health, and prosperity. In Greek, the word is irene, and it also refers to an element of spiritual peace. So what does peace mean for the Christian? In Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at a time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him... We both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. 
In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Father, thank you that you draw us to yourself. That you come to bring peace. We get confused on what peace looks like and what the conditions of that peace are. We tend to hold on that that we're under some impression that, that we can make peace with you. We have a tendency to think that the burden of peace with God rests on our shoulders. This morning we've talked about war. And now it's time to talk about peace. In your name we pray. So what does this peace mean for the Christian? First of all, we know that Jesus came to bring us peace with God. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, and who say to Zion, your God reigns. I used to wonder what this verse means. (laughs) Has anybody else ever been confused about that concept of beautiful feet? And I'm not trying to be sarcastic, but it never made any sense to me. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. About 15 years or so, I was watching a special. It was a History Channel something. I don't remember exactly the name of the show. But as I was studying for this, I'll get back to that show. As I was studying for this, I I found out that, um, that the beautiful feet, the beautiful feet on the mountains of those who bring good news, it was because kings awaited messengers to come back and bring news of a battle. And when somebody came running up over the hill or came running into the, uh, the king's court and they would bring news of victory, that was what the king waited for. He'd see the dust flying up in the distance and he'd wait with bated breath as his messenger came running through. And the feet that carried the message of peace, that carried the message of victory, was a beautiful sight. So I was watching this special. And the show was about the raid on Los Banos in the Philippines in World War II. It was a combined action of U.S. airborne and Filipino guerrilla forces, and they freed more than 2,000 civilian captives. There was an older woman who was... uh, a Filipino woman who was, um, who was being interviewed, and she was a little girl at the time of this, uh, of this raid. And she said she was hiding under her cot when the raid started. And all she could see was the boots of the soldiers who had come to rescue her. And she said those boots were the most beautiful sight she had ever seen. 
And that was the first time this verse came to life for me. It made any kind of sense at all. How do people see us when we approach them with the gospel of peace? Are we an added burden? Or are we beautiful? In Isaiah 53, 5, we're told he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we're healed. It was his punishment that brought us peace. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. So is this a piece of health and prosperity? As some pastors will say. Well, possibly. Any kind of peace that we're able to gain is a blessing from God. Any kind of peace at all. Prosperity, physical peace, soundness of mind, health, wellness. But most importantly, it's a spiritual peace. But remember what we just read in Ephesians. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus Jesus came to bring us peace. But Paul says that Jesus himself is our peace. In verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Who has made the two groups one. And has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. And then in Romans 5, Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing that we need to take into consideration as we talk about peace is the role of Jesus was to bring us peace with God. A lot of people talk about world peace. and I think we've pretty much seen that that's probably not going to happen. People talk about peace in the Middle East, and we say that that's not going to happen. But what about peace with God? How many people cry out for peace with God? Not most of us. Not most of the world. We tend to have, uh, have this concept of, uh, of deal-making with God. God, I want to be at peace with you, so... Um, why don't you do this, so why don't you do this, so why don't you do this, and then we'll talk. But God's offer of peace was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is God's offer of peace. Jesus himself is our peace. And it's interesting that, um, that the way that Paul puts this, the way that this was um, canonized in Scripture, is he says he himself is our peace. 
Jesus is not just the gateway to peace, and he's not just God's peace with us. Jesus is our peace. He has made the two groups of the Jews and the Gentiles into one group, and he's destroyed that barrier. And I love the way that this is put, the dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall of hostility. So then the question becomes, um, is Jesus your dividing wall of hostility with others? And he did this by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Thus making peace. Let me put this another way. Everyone who has peace in Christ must have peace with everyone else who has peace in Christ. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. He preached peace to those who were far away and preached peace to those who were near. Whether you are, or whether you consider yourself near to God or far away from God, the message is the same. Jesus is your peace. And he is preaching that peace to you to make peace with him and to make peace with others through him. He is our peace. Therefore, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is where our peace with God comes. It comes through Jesus Christ. In Romans 8, 6, Paul says, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. And in Acts 10, you know the message, of the, the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. God sent his message to the people of Israel, and he sent his message to the world through his own teaching and preaching, and through the disciples that he sent out as it has continued and passed on and passed on and passed on over generations. We're here. 2,000 years later. Because the message of Christ, of, of peace with God, and of peace with each other through him, has continued on and continued on and continued on through those who have found peace with Christ and peace through Christ and have made peace with others through Christ and have told others of how they have made peace with God and with others through Christ. And we are told to go and to proclaim the message of peace with others. That they can have peace with God through Christ. And they can have peace with others through Christ. So the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. 
So God sent Jesus Christ to be our peace and to make a way of peace so that we could have peace with God. But also, so we can have peace with each other. When we're at peace with God, we can and should be, at more, be, be more at peace with each other. But here's one of the other parts of that. We are directed to make an effort to be at peace with each other. Oh, you have to work for it? Yes. Yes, we have to, we have to work for it. We have to work at it. Look at 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. That's what he says. He gets to the point in a list of things for us to pay attention to And he finalizes it with this. Rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Strive for full restoration. Which means put in tedious effort. Diligent, persevering work to meet your end goal of peace with each other. Of restoration. The previous church where I served, it was a church that was filled with strife. But God only left me there eight years, so you know. Um, But the church is filled with strife. And it was filled with strife between wonderful people. It's important that we understand that that we're not looking at um, a group of hateful people, we're looking at a group of hurting people. People that were wonderful. Everybody was wonderful in so many different ways. They were kind to certain people, but they just struggled against each other, and they just rubbed each other the wrong way, and it wasn't all of them. Some of it was agenda-based. Some of it was personality-based. Some of it was, um, was management, administration, differences of opinion, differences of direction, the way we handle our finances, what it looks like to reach out to the community and if we should and how much we should and how much we should spend to do it. There's so many different things that would just draw people into conflict. Satan loves that kind of stuff. But over the, and this, this had been going on over 20 years before I got there. They'd gone through three pastors that had tried their best. And they would call pastors in telling them that, um, that we want to reach the community and we want to grow and we want to be um, a ministry in the community. And it was a small community church. Um, there were two things in that community. And there was the church and the gas station across the street from the church. And, uh, and the town was Tate, Georgia. And people say, um, where is Tate? And I say, it's right there between uh, Ballground and Nelson. Of course, nobody else knows either, so don't feel bad. Um, but, uh, but there was a marble mine in Tate, Georgia, and there was the church, and there was the Methodist church, and there was the gas station. And everything else had a different zip code and a different, uh, um, 
the mailman leaned out of the, the, the post office and said, Mail's here! And everybody came to get their mail. That's how small the town was. Because he wasn't going to bring it to you. And you better get there before 10. Because... <laughs> But it was a wonderful church with wonderful people who just couldn't get along. And I didn't know what it was, and I couldn't figure it out. And I spent most of my time in that, in that ministry, um, after, especially after the pastor left and the music minister left, and um, I was the only one left, with having no idea of how I was supposed to handle this or deal with this. But when you have an interim pastor that comes in and lasts less than a year, and he um, leaves in a fury and slams the key to the pulpit, <laughs> the key to the church down in the pulpit, and drives off. That's a bad sign. But at one point, I was meeting with the deacons. And we just had a regular meeting, and we spent some time in prayer and talking about it. And, and I finally realized what was going on. Not that I, like, nobody else realized, but I finally realized what was so hard for people to come together, and the, the reason was because everybody waited for somebody else to make an apology before they were willing to forgive them. I will forgive them when they apologize. Okay, so what if they don't apologize? Well, then biblically, I don't have to forgive them. Okay. But, but there is nothing unusual about the people in that church and nothing unusual about that attitude. That's how most of us operate. The forgiveness is second, secondary to somebody else's forgiveness or somebody else's apology. When they confess, then I'll forgive them. Well, maybe they won't confess until they think you're going to forgive them. As Spurgeon said, um, refusing, I've shared this before, refusing to forgive is like drinking a poison in hopes that the other person dies. <laughs> Strive for full restoration. Pursue it. Dig for it. Move forward in it. And encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. I don't know if this is chronological. But it's interesting that he finishes that with, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. Period. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Is that why we don't have peace? We don't push for it. We don't strive for it. We don't do everything we can for our part to make sure that, that we're good, that we get along. We don't encourage each other. It's so easy today to live by looking at others through a lens of fault. But in Romans twelve eighteen. If it is possible, if, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There's two implications there. One of them is it's not going to be possible to live with everybody at peace. 
And the second implication is you do everything you can on your part to live at peace with everyone. That's not a guarantee that you're going to live at peace with everyone. And I've heard this verse chopped up. I've heard live at peace with everyone. And I've heard people say, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And I've heard somebody say, if it's possible, live at peace with everyone. But it's all that put together that's important. If it's possible, do everything you can. As far as it depends on you, do everything you can to live at peace with everyone. And there is nothing in that verse that indicates blowing it off if it's not possible. At what point? At what point do we say, well, I've tried everything I can and it's been three weeks. Romans 14, 19 supports that. It backs it up just two chapters later. It says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Let's make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Edification is building each other up, which is also mentioned, he also mentions in 2 Corinthians. Encourage one another. Build each other up. So, we found out that Jesus came to give us, give us peace with God. Jesus is our peace. And we can have peace with God, and now we're called to have peace with each other. Let me ask you a question. Do you think it's easier to make peace with a holy God or with another flawed brother? But have you considered the fact that God made the made the first move to make peace with us when he wasn't at fault. And now we're the ones that are also told to go as much as possible to live at peace with everyone, to strive to live at peace, to strive to be fully restored for each other. An interesting passage is in Mark 5. When the lady who was um, who has been, uh, been bleeding for years and years. There's a crowd pressing against Jesus as he walks through this crowd. And this lady needs to be healed, but she doesn't cry out to Jesus. She doesn't call out. Uh, she doesn't tell his disciples, pass this note up. Jesus walks past, and I, and I kind of have this image that everybody's pressing against Jesus, and the best she can do, because she t- it talks about he reaches, she reaches for the hem of his garment. The best she can do is to crawl down, maybe laying on her side, and just kind of swiping at it. And I'm not trying to be crass, but this woman is desperate. And she swipes out, and her fingertip catches the hem of his robe. And Jesus stops, he goes, who touched me? And his disciples are like, Everybody. He said, no, no, power flowed for me. Who was it? And I kind of get this image of Jesus kind of looking around, and his hand between people. That was me down here. But it says she trembled with fear. She trembled with fear. As she had to approach the teacher, the rabbi, whatever she knew about Jesus at, at that time, that she knew he was so powerful that he could heal her. That she was go, willing to go to lengths of 
crawling toward him in a crowd and just hoping she could touch his jacket. And she trembled with fear as she approached him. She said, it was, it was me. And this was his response. Your faith has healed you. First he called her daughter. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Why peace? Was he talking about going in prosperity? How did she approach Jesus? First she approached him with faith, hoping that she could get a, get a touch. But then she approached him with fear when he found out what she had done and who she was. And he said, go in peace. In other words, we're okay. We're good. I'm not angry with you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. He said, your faith has healed you. We're good. And you're not going to have to deal with what you've been dealing with for the last 12 years anymore. She took a swipe at it. She did everything she could to gain from God what she needed. And Jesus' response wasn't, well, let's talk about this. It was, I know what you need. And because of your faith, I have healed you. But we're also good. I'm not angry with you. Go. When Jesus was talking to his disciples, he said, my peace I leave with you, John 14, 27. My peace I give you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. Jesus continues to give us peace, not the way that other people can give us peace. He gives us peace in a way only God can give that peace. He is giving us that peace to go and to restore relationships and to preach his message and to be at peace with God with what he has called us to do in Colossians 3:15, we're told let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you are called to peace and be thankful let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts most of the time we're upset at other people because the peace, of, the peace of Christ is not ruling ours in us. I've been upset at people who serve Christ better than I do. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I know that's, I'm not the only one that's happened to. A lot. We get jealous. We get irritated about it. We start throwing out names. Holy roller. We start finding some motivation why we're not as some motive, uh, why we don't serve God with the passion that somebody else serves God. Our situation is different. My circumstance is different. I don't have what they have. God hasn't blessed me that the way that they, He's blessed them. My gifts are different. But as, as Randy has told us before, um, and as uh, we've most of, or maybe all of us have read in Scripture, that God has put the body together just as He sees fit so that each member has a purpose. So let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you are called to peace. 
and be thankful. And in John 16, 33, Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. We cannot avoid trouble and stress and strain and struggle. We can't avoid that in this world. He says, you will have trouble. But I've overcome the world. Which leads to the third point. Being at peace with God means we can be more at peace with our lives and our circumstances. Somebody once said, safety consists not in the absence of danger, but in the presence of God. Safety consists not in the absence of danger, but in the presence of God. In Romans 15, 13, we're told, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Duke University did a study on peace of mind. I want you to listen to these. There's eight of them. Eight factors that are found to contribute greatly to emotional and mental stability. Um, And I want you to kind of track these down as far as where you are. I'm not going to tell you which ones I struggle with. I mean, I love you, but not that much. All right, Duke University. All right. All right, so, uh, so here's the um, factors contributing to emotional and mental stability. Number one, the absence of suspicion and resentment. This is what that means. Nursing a grudge was a major factor in unhappiness. Man, if only the Bible said something about forgiveness. Okay? Um, so this is Duke. This is not, you know... Jesus-y institution. Um, but, uh, sorry, I shouldn't use Jesus as an adjective. Um, but uh, that's what he says. That's what, one of the things that contribute to emotional instability is the absence of suspicion and resentment. Nursing a grudge. Nursing a grudge. A major factor in unhappiness. Number two, not living in the past. An unwholesome preoccupation with old mistakes and failures leads to depression. Oh, man, my hand went up on its own. Oh, I did not plan for that. An unwholesome preoccupation with old mistakes and failures. I cannot tell you how many times a day I think about things that I shouldn't have said or things I shouldn't have done or relationships I should have handled differently. Number three, not wasting time and energy fighting conditions you cannot change. And this is an interesting statement. Cooperate with life instead of trying to run away from it. Not wasting time and energy fighting conditions you cannot change. I, um, I was reading um, on, uh, on one of the news websites last night. There was a, um, an anchor woman in Indiana. And, um, and she was interviewed um, on her, the news channel she works for. Uh, because she is pregnant, and she found out that her child has a terminal illness. She's several months along. She's um, she's showing you know pretty far along, 
and her child has anencephaly. I don't know exactly what that is, but encephaly means that there's um, a brain, some kind of fluid, you know, something in the head. Um, but I don't know, I couldn't, it didn't describe exactly what it is, but they said it's fatal. Uh, the child may live, baby's stillborn, may live a few hours, may live a few days, may live up to a couple of weeks. But um, 80-something percent die within hours after birth. So, of course, she was asked a question about aborting her baby. And she said, and she said, absolutely not. Regardless of how long our daughter's life is, God has planned for her to have a role and a purpose in this world. And we're going to see that through. Now, is the response of most people, good for you? No. The response of most people is, well, that's stupid. Or that's terrible. Or see what a problem her faith has caused her. Now she has to deal with um, a dying or sick baby. And then, of course, the character of God comes into play. And the question that always comes to me, how is it that people who don't believe in God have so much opinion on his character? So not wasting time and energy fighting conditions you cannot change. Cooperate with life instead of trying to run away from it. And this family was a great example of that, of saying this is where things are for us. This is what God has laid out. This is how our life is going right now. How are we going to respond to this? Number four. Force yourself to stay involved with the living world. Resist the temptation to withdraw and become reclusive during periods of emotional stress. Again, that's me. Force yourself to stay involved with the living world. Number five. Refuse to indulge in self-pity when life hands you a raw deal. Accept the fact that nobody gets through life without some sorrow and misfortune. As Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. But I've overcome the world. Number six. Cultivate the old-fashioned virtues, love, humor, compassion, and loyalty. Yesterday I was here um, and, uh, and a couple of the guys showed up to unload the trailer from the, from the mission trip. And as we were unloading, Ronnie told me a couple of stories. He said, um, he s- talked about how much of a wreck everything was. And he said, but some people still maintain their sense of humor. He said, uh, we took one, uh, one ride one afternoon and, and uh, they went through this nice neighborhood, but all the trees were down and they had been chopped up and there was just debris piled in front of everybody's houses. You couldn't even see the houses behind them because of the limbs and branches had been chopped up and stacked in front of the houses. And one guy put a sign out that said, Yard of the Month. (laughs) The witness of my family at the hospital two weeks ago made a huge impact. As we made the decision to pull my father off life support, we were all unified, we're all in agreement. Um, My dad used to go and get sausage biscuits at McDonald's every morning because it was one of the few things that he could eat that was soft enough and had enough flavor that he could taste it. 
And um, if you don't know, he had had uh, mouth and tongue, uh, tongue and throat cancer uh, a couple of years ago, and between radiation and everything, then he lost a lot of sensitivity and, um, and everything. He was just not being able to get stuff back. So, um, so we went one morning and, um, and got, uh, got a sausage biscuit and a cup of coffee for my dad, which he wasn't going to eat. Uh, but my sister put it in his hand and started taking pictures. And we started talking and joking and laughing with my, my dad and my mom and uh, my sisters. And, uh, and we had all come to an agreement on how we were supposed to handle this thing with my dad. And the nurse, well, two nurses on different shifts both came in and said, this is so refreshing. This is so refreshing. She said, a few doors down, we're in the ICU, and a few doors down, there's a family facing the same thing. And, one of the, and his daughter, who hadn't been part of the family for 10 years, is coming in and trying to exert control, and it's chaos. And she said, seeing a family that is in agreement and that is um, loving each other and caring for each other and supporting each other is such a rarity compared to a lot of the stuff that we see when people get into stressful situations. but we were raised on love and humor and compassion and loyalty. No matter what direction we went in, no matter what was going on, there were things that we had loyalty to and virtues that we were expected to uphold. And even in that, in that stressful time, um, it helped. It didn't just help as a witness to other people, it helped us as a family. Cultivate the old-fashioned virtues, love, humor, compassion, and loyalty. Number seven, don't expect too much of yourself. Don't take this the wrong way. <laughs> I would reword it differently. Expect an appropriate amount from yourself. When they clarified, it makes more sense. When there is too wide a gap between self-expectation and your ability to meet the goals you have set, feelings of inadequacy are inevitable. Feelings of inadequacy are, are inevitable. Push yourself a little bit. Push yourself a little bit to do what, um, what you would like to do to reach your goals. But don't go so far that it's un you're unable to do it and consider yourself a failure. Number eight, find something bigger than yourself to believe in. Self-centered, egotistical people score lowest in any test for measuring happiness. Find something bigger than yourself to believe in. Philippians 4, 7 says the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In 1555, Nicholas Ridley was burned at the stake because of his witness for Christ. On the night before Ridley's execution, his brother offered to remain with him in the prison chamber to be of assistance and comfort. Nicholas declined the offer and replied that he meant to go to bed and asleep as quietly as he ever had in his life. Because he knew the peace of God, he could rest in the strength of the everlasting arms of his Lord to meet his need. Matthew Henry says this, Peace is such a precious jewel that I would give anything for it but truth. Peace is such a precious jewel that I would give anything for it but truth. One final note. 
The armistice that was signed on November 11th, 1918 was to cease hostilities for 36 days. That's all. To cease hostilities for 36 days. It was not a surrender. The only way to gain absolute peace with God is through absolute surrender to God. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much that the love you have for us means that not only are you working to make peace with us, but you have provided the way of peace. That Jesus is our peace. And we need that peace. In your name we pray, amen. This morning, I don't know where anybody is in regards to peace. Peace with God, peace with your neighbor, peace with yourself, peace with your life circumstances. We all live in turmoil all the time for lots of different things, lots of different reasons, and lots of different relationships. But the fact is, God's desire for us is to be at peace. His desire is for us to have peace. Our life may not get easier. You may not automatically be healed from a disease that you have, or a relationship may not automatically be restored. But God is calling for you to have peace with him. And if you're at peace with God through Jesus Christ, then you can also be at peace with other people who are at peace with God through Jesus Christ. But a lot of times we have to work for it. We have to strive for it. And the starting point for that is peace with God. Father, give me peace. So as I approach others in peace, we can be at peace. You may not be at peace with God. You may be angry with God. You may deny God's existence. You may resent the fact that you have to hear about God at all. But the offer from Jesus still stands. It stands for everybody. That God sent Jesus to be our peace and to be our way of peace with the Father. So the altar's here. I'm here. I'll turn my microphone off so we're quiet. But anybody who has anything to pray for, wants anything to, has anything they want to work through, here we are. Make peace.